street epistemology is a wonderful approach that anyone can learn. You can learn more about street epistemology at streetepistemology.com. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Epistemic, episode number 16, Cognitive Biases. I'm your host, Reed Nicewander, and I have our co-host today, Magna Anthony Magnabosco. What's up, Anthony? <laughs> Magnabosco. I thought you were just going to call me by my last name. What's up, guys? Sure. Nice to be here again. Hey. And also our special guest today is Adam Hansen. What's up, Adam? Howdy, folks. What do you know? What's up? Not much. Uh, yeah, so Adam is... Uh, going to be talking about cognitive biases today, and he has written a book called Outsmart Your Instincts, which is all about um, these biases and how to apply them in the business world and innovation, how to get your business innovating. And uh, But I think I think a lot of this knowledge about cognitive biases can help us with some, some of these SE conversations. So what do you think about that, Adam? Uh, do you think yeah. this, this can help? I, I think your I think your intuitions are pretty good on this. Uh, I think, and and even there, I make the distinction between instincts and intuition. Um, but it's uh, yeah. I mean, so what? Why we were able to go there is is because we found a lot of the work that we'd been doing for years. Our our company is coming up on our fortieth anniversary, and we'd kind of formed this approach to being effective in you know co creation with our clients and their customers and they're the most creative of their customers. But as, as we started to look at what was going on in behavioral science, particularly on the cognitive biases, we thought, Hey, we see these showing up all the time. And, and more to the point, we're already without necessarily having had that lens, we're already doing things about uh, many of these. Uh, and so just kind of pulling that together and just having a better starting point for what's true about us as humans, is uh, I, I, it's just it's where you want to be if you want to be effective, and so um, as in anything you're trying to do, you want to be a good business partner. You want to be a good you want to be good with your relationship partner. You want to be a good friend. You want to whatever whatever. Uh, you want to help people have have better productive conversations. Uh, being aware of these ingrained instincts, these cognitive biases that served our ancestors well and were really great shortcuts or heuristics for them under very different conditions, um, being aware of them and how they're not as great a fit for us often now in certain things that we're trying to do in much of what we're trying to do. Uh, it has to start there so you can then do something about it, right? And so mm -hmm. knowing what, what these biases are, knowing how they tend to show up, what they, what they look like when they're actually being acted upon, uh, but then having a few things you can do to mitigate, you know, the the worst effects from them, seems to be a, a kind of a worthwhile, a worthwhile endeavor. And just as our bodies are are still wired for caloric scarcity, because that's the you know the regime under which our, our ancestors lived, and now living in a time of caloric overabundance with bodies that are still wired for caloric scarcity, that's why many of us are in trouble physically. And so the same thing applies to these mental um, shortcuts that just aren't serving us so well now. Right. So our, our past um, reality uh, served us well then, and but our 
our present reality uh, doesn't really help us too much. Like our, our evolved, yeah, uh, you know, evolved selves in this present reality causes some problems. But yeah, being yeah, there's helps. yeah, there's just this mismatch that uh, it's helpful for us to be aware of, so we can do something about it. And that's a great thing that we have. And 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 we're that strand of DNA that can actually do stuff about you know uh, that we're. You know, we're um, there certainly are low grade cognitive functions in other primates, for example. We know that something's going on there. But um, as far as we can tell so far, metacognition is something that only we get to do. So not to do that seems to be, you know, kind of a like, you know, come on, let's 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 use the full toolkit. Let's do what we can. Yeah, I love it. Like, what do you think? I'm kind of wondering. Thinking. Go ahead, Anthony. I was going to say, well, I'm kind of wondering why you think a human sort of evolved to be to the point that we are now, where this seems to be a hindrance. If if you would think that it, that the, the result of evolution is usually positive traits, are there some benefits to the cognitive biases that we have that, that sure. outweigh the negatives that we tend to see? Well, yeah, and, and in two ways. And so, first off is just whenever conditions are closer to the conditions under which these um, these heuristics evolved, then they're still great. So like if you're in a moment of danger, man, go in fully on negativity bias because you need, you just need to you need to put your, uh, as much distance between yourself and the source of danger as you possibly can. and and taking time to reflect and go, gee, what's wonderful about this? Not very smart. So where conditions are more like those kind of paleolithic conditions, then it's great that, I mean, really negativity bias and, and kind of some of those reflexes are shown to, to actually um, take place even before cognition steps in. And that can be helpful. You know, the flinch response, these things that our body just knows to do even before the prefrontal cortex gets engaged, that's great in those kinds of, of circumstances. Uh, it's, it's really, it's not about, get, you can't, we're not going to be able to get rid of these, these shortcuts of these cognitive biases. We can only mitigate their worst effects under certain conditions. And so it's just being more aware of what's going on, what is true so that we can, you know, amplify our toolkit and just be, um, and be more adaptive. And so that's that's one place the other the other way to think about these cognitive biases they are what they are and so without getting entirely machiavellian you can ask well since that's going to happen anyway what can we do that acknowledges that and um places us in a in a in a in a better place anyhow so knowing that knowing that people will succumb to confirmation bias can you give them the right stuff uh, that they're going to confirm, <laughs> you know, right. and, and, and help mm -hmm. them when they when they go there and they have that quick reaction and they get into what Kahneman calls fast thinking instead of the more deliberate slow thinking, which we know is always the default mode when they're exercising confirmation bias, at least at least what they're confirming is actually more adaptive and more helpful. So, yeah, there, there are ways actually to be. Um, deliberate with this and just recognize that you know we can we can you know kind of fuss all we want to about what's true about humans or we can go well no this is how it is so how, how can we 
how can we be how can we be most effective given that mm. right and you talked about thinking fast and slow i think with se conversations we're deliberately trying to slow down yeah and get into that reflective thinking mode we yeah. know that well, how many conversations have you seen a lot of the yeah. se conversations there adam i'm kind of wondering yeah yeah i have and and i think oh, yeah uh i won't overstate it i've seen three <laughs> um okay. but but this i i applaud this because it's not and so that's why we titled the book Outsmart Your Instincts, because your instincts don't take you to slow thinking. Uh, we want to just, it's its a labor saving device and, and slow thinking is cognitively expensive. And if you do a lot of it, it, it really can wear you out. And, and so the, the metaphor, or not even the metaphor, but just the example that, that seems to resonate with people is, I ask you to recall the first time in driver's ed that you pulled out onto the freeway and what that felt like and like how all your senses were pressed into full uh, high alert full attention your eyes probably were more open so you could take in more of the visual field i mean you're just like ah, oh, you know and, and that that is very indicative i think of of some of of what um system two thinking or more slow thinking can be it's you're you are working so hard and that's why 15 minutes on the freeway the first time you know when the, when the driver's ed instructor is finally nice enough to say okay that that's good that's good for right now why don't you get off on this exit you just kind of go oh thank god and uh, <laughs> you know um now that that's it at kind of an extreme level but it's yeah I'm, yeah i kind of use hyperbole to make that point uh we we're fundamentally lazy and we don't want to go there uh usually uh, now what's great is that we can then actually engage you know our uh, do dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex and go no there's some real value now in being deliberate about this and being proactive and saying you know no damn it we're going to we're going to do some hard work now and and it, and it and it's important and it's valuable and we'll get something the return on investment will be uh more than worth it and so I think just being aware of this stuff so that we can be more, um, more discerning, we can just be better managers of these amazing uh, capabilities that we have, again, that, that no other life form does. Uh, it seems like we ought to make a point of becoming better and better at that. Awesome, yeah, great. I remember moving here to LA about seven years ago. It felt like I was just back in, you know, driver school. It was just a completely <laughs> different, different thing. Yeah, but now, yeah, like, absolutely. Now, now it's yeah. pretty automatic, and it's 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 nice. I can I can go through uh, traffic like this crazy just automatically. It's very it's very oh, nice. Oh, absolutely. Well, and that's and that's a whole story of talent or, or skill acquisition, right? is you start off early on, you suck at it, and it's effortful, and you really have to bring an awful lot to it, and, it's, and, and as such, it's really tiring. But then, you know, the first time you pulled onto the freeway was that experience. By the fifth time even, okay, you're starting to get there. You still have to really pay attention and everything, but it's not quite as, um, you know, just frightening. By the 50th time, okay, now you're starting to get into a, you know, you're starting to get the hang of it, and by the 500th time, we, we've all experienced the idea of, wow, I wasn't even really present for that last 
15 miles. Like, where was I? You know, and, and it is the whole story of skill and talent acquisition is pushing stuff from effortful system to slow thinking into uh, system one effort, almost effortless, but certainly automatic, um, not cognitively taxing at all. Um, you know, thinking and, and, and behavior. Mm. Right. So you've seen, you said that you've seen three conversations. That's probably enough to be able to notice that we tend to really slow things down when we're talking and try to create a, a sense of safety when we're having these talks and openness and, you know, encouraging that type of deep reflection. Yeah. Is that what, would you care, would you characterize that as that slow thinking and, and accessing those, those deep, memories and belief formation is that kind of what you're talking about there well i, th I think is that, the, is that what's going on what i i think that can be what's going on and and i think the, the first thing you mentioned is so i i don't know that you can overstate the importance of establishing psychological safety and and with that does come a certain amount of emotional intelligence and again just kind of a recognition of what's true about humans uh, and what is for sure true about humans is that they don't like to be backed into corners because the moment you do that, the prefrontal cortex kind of checks out. You're fully into the amygdala now. And so the level of your conversation <laughs> is going to kind of be constrained yeah. by, uh, you know, Captain Fields, you know, and we need <laughs> the amygdala and the amygdala, you know, as the saying goes, make, you know, make war with a multitude of counselors. The amygdala is a great counselor and you you need to have it, but it should typically not be the final arbiter. It shouldn't be the final decision maker. <laughs> and that's that's the that is it's the reason why we call, you know, one of the tasks, one of the main tasks of the prefrontal cortex is executive function. You do need a a smart, wise executive that can take counsel from the emotions and from reactions. There's great information there but not just um, kind of absolve itself of responsibility to the amygdala and to the feelings. And so that's, we just wanna play with a bigger toolkit. We wanna use everything that we have as adaptively and as resourcefully as we possibly can. Yeah, so I think we skipped over like your background, like who oh, are yeah. you Adam and why, <laughs> why, why should we care what you're talking about? Like what, what's this, who are you? So I'm, I'll make this short because I, I get I get bored with my own story. Uh, I'm uh, I got really lucky. So I'll tell you first the professional, and then we can talk more about the uh, epistemological or the uh, you know the uh, that other stuff. But uh, in my work, I got really lucky in grad school to have a professor who made the case that you could actually have an entire career in innovation. And I'm this punk kid from Shelley, Idaho, and I'm going to grad school at uh, Indiana University in Bloomington. And uh, that was an entirely new thought to me. Like I knew that innovation was gonna be part of my career, but that it could be my career was uh, just ridiculously great news to me. And so I just, I mean, it really was a light bulb moment for me. And I, I understand how lucky I was in that. Um, but I remember thinking, Man, if you could do that for a living, why wouldn't you? I don't. I don't understand why. I don't understand why there isn't a marquee with neon festooned around this idea. 
and so I've been very fortunate. My first job out of grad school, you know, was new product development manager at a at a small kitchen electrics company in uh, Chaska, Minnesota. And um, ever since then, that's what I've been doing. And so the first uh, half, it's now a little less than half because I'm getting older <laughs> of my career was on the client mm -hmm. side, uh, working lastly as innovation director at Mars, the, the candy company out here in Northwestern New Jersey, where we still are. And while I was there, I became a client of an innovation consulting firm called Ideas to Go, where I am now, and uh, have now been at Ideas to Go for about 16 years. And just love that I get to do what I do. And I get to think about innovation. I get to think about how our clients can create new forms of value that are even more meaningful to their customers. And, and getting the most creative of their customers, that's part of our process. Getting creative customers and other creative stakeholders involved directly with the client team to, uh, to generate these new possibilities. And then very quickly getting into early prototyping and testing and, and getting, them, getting some nice momentum established for them. So as such there, I've really become a student of, of these pesky humans. And, um, and I, I say that jokingly because I, if anything, I've become just more and more aware of my own peskiness. And, uh, as you learn some of this stuff and <laughs> you find yourself, you know, falling into these all too predictable um, routines, it's just if if your main takeaway isn't some sense of humility, then I think you're probably doing it wrong. But mm -hmm. it's it's there is some sense, I think, of collegiality about it. There is this idea that, well, you know, son of a gun, we're all in this together, aren't we? I mean, this is just <laughs> it's kind of our dilemma. So let's figure out better ways together and let's be supportive of each other. But one way of being supportive is not to um, uh, encourage, you know, dumb behavior or, 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 or encourage persistence in maladaptive uh, thinking and, and behavior. So doing that in the right way, making it fun, making it approachable, making it uh, importantly, helping, helping, uh, all that we work with see the benefits very quickly of, of taking this approach that is a little more conscious, a little more deliberate, but in, in a fun way and, and, and not an overly, not, you know, way that isn't characterized by uh, drudgery or anything like that. It actually is very enjoyable. Uh, and so I find tremendous satisfaction in that. What we can do for our clients, what we can do for great, you know, in great nonprofit situations uh, is is really encouraging to me, and so I think as long as I can keep my health and everything, I'm I will never really quit doing what I do because it's just it is so blasted much fun. Uh, so that's that on the um, in terms of epistemology and and meaning and and like who are we? Why are we here? You know, where are we going? All those big questions. I was a very uh, active Mormon uh, until I was about 38. And uh, then <laughs> this realization of what I do for a living, challenging assumptions and, you know, kind of blow, kind of blowing up clients, you know, established structures to see what else, what new we can bring out of that how to challenge the algorithm and say, hey, the algorithm is great only as long as the world doesn't change. 
but the moment the world starts to change, we we have to go, we have to blow up the algorithm and go figure out what the new thing is going to be. Um, and I think the only reason why I was as active in the church as long as I was is a, it kind of a testament to the powers of acculturation. And it's hard to um, imagine believing or even thinking certain other ways if you're never exposed really to those other ways or or you can kind of get past the idea that thinking or believing differently is anything other than a threat or a sin or bad or whatever and just see it a little more objectively kind of without valence um you know truth should bear scrutiny you know and so um kind of finally <laughs> finally getting the getting that figured out and everything um there was still you know wonderful experiences i you know, i got to go on my mission to uh, quito ecuador so i'm i'm still fluent in spanish i actually taught spanish for three years when i was younger after i got back off my mission um mm. that was still still such a great experience but even there going into a different culture which requires you to um see things from very uh, a very different perspective. I mean, if you're going to have any empathy at all, you need to pretty quickly kind of get rid of your need to be right and just kind of observe and, 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 and kind of take, you know, a lot of the things that could plague you if you're overly invested in uh, only doing things one way uh, thinking them less as being right or wrong and, and thinking more about just being effective and being compassionate. And, and so that was probably planting some seeds early on, uh, you know, as I, um, formed great friendships with people who weren't Mormon and I saw how really good they were and how in many ways they were, they were just, you know, in, in, in certain facets, just much better people than I was. And yet, having to make that coincide with the fact that my faith was perfect and there was theirs wasn't, um, that just um, increasingly quit working. And and so, yeah, it, it, it was with some trauma and and some um, you know kind of familial stress, mainly with my uh, with my father. Um, you know, I kind of got through that. And then even Dad and I got to the the place after you know uh too many years where it was it was good again and so his last three years before he passed on were actually quite good and uh i'm really glad we got there so anyhow yeah so that's my that's that's that background <laughs> gotcha well thank you so much for sharing that that's really yeah nice and you said like what was it truth shall bear scrutiny i love that phrase yeah truth bears scrutiny if it's true yeah. you you like why wouldn't you test it why wouldn't you have it confront other perspectives like what like the fact that you can't let that happen i think says something like what what's your fear like if you really think mm -hmm. it's true it then it ought to be able you know without i i'm guessing your audience probably doesn't dig too many quotes from the good book but, um, you know, Paul, the Apostle Paul says, prove all things, you know, mm -hmm. and, and hold fast to that which is good. There should be some testing going on. There should be some experimenting. Again, we are that strand of DNA that can do this kind of stuff. And so it seems like we, we probably ought to be doing it on a more regular basis. We ought to be more thoughtful about that. 
and um, uh, yeah, so I, I could go on and on. This could be a very long show, but I have I have compassion for your audience. <laughs> sure. Now, thank you for sharing your story too. That was cool. Um, what, a couple things that jumped out at me when you were when you were talking about that about how you uh, you being open to other people's points of view ended up causing you to reflect on your own beliefs, and yeah. even that that whole thing started, I guess, from a point of empathy. Like you, you sort of empathized with these folks, these, these people that were, I, I presume being good to you and that type of thing. Oh, I, I, I mean, think that's really important. Yeah, I, I, I love these people. And, and so this, this clash of, of having to be in a position of thinking of them as, as somehow, you know, deficient in a really important area. I just, I, I, I had, I just had to get rid of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The other thing you were talking about was ego, that it's important to to set your own ego aside. And I, I think I think the whole empathy and ego are really critical components to when you because we're we're primarily focused on having really effective conversations with people. And I think those are really two critical elements. If you can set aside your ego and if you can have empathy for the person that you're speaking with, and like we talked earlier, you can you, you can create that sense of comfort, that psychological yeah. safety. Yeah you're going to have a dynamic conversation. It's going to probably go very well and, and probably help a person reflect on, on a deeply held belief like they haven't done for probably a very, very long, a very long while. Well, yeah. And that's it. And it's, it's, um, if you let it happen, life can really support a life of, of zero reflection. Right, you know the 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 uh, unexamined mind is not worth living, uh, and people hear that and go, oh yeah, that's really nice, and then they proceed not to examine their life, uh, and I sound very judgmental when I do that. I mean, we all do that to to a certain extent, and so we ought to we ought to feel uh, some compassion around that, because there's a reason why it's so easy not to examine things is because it does require work and it can be uncomfortable and. Like, am I all alone? Am I the only idiot out here trying to sort through all this? And like, what's that all about? And and um, we're um, we're not really kind of, kind of back to the, the cognitive biases. We're not really wired in, in, in as a default mode to be to be especially reflective. Uh, and so if, I, I think some of us may have certain predispositions toward that more than others, but overall as a species, we kind of suck at that. And so any, <laughs> any, any reflection we get to is something going on where we see the benefit of it and going, yeah, it's a little uncomfortable, but so is, so are our arm curls, you know? Uh, yeah, I do, I, I gotta mm. do one more rep. Are you kidding me? You know, I, I still have a whole other set to do, what? You know, <laughs> but what do you, what do you want to get? What are you trying to accomplish? And, and so being thoughtful about what you want to create. And I, uh, I think Reed's heard, heard me go on about this, but it, it's, um, there are different lenses we can take in how we think about who we are. And Homo sapiens is you know, kind of what Linnaeus gave us. And good job, Carl, thank you. Uh, but I think we could also think of us as Homo faber or the, you know, the, the creative hominid. Uh, and I think that's also kind of a distinguishing feature. There are certain again low levels of creativity in some of the other primates but not really and um i think creativity is is 
in us. It is there. And, and this idea, some of the research that um, you see of, of generational co cohorts, when you ask kindergartners how many of them uh, see themselves as creative, it's about 100%. Like, it'd be really odd for a kindergartner to think, oh, no, I'm not creative. Uh, by the time you get to third grade, you're already starting to lo lose about a third of the class. By the time they're in eighth grade, you're up to two-thirds of the class who don't see themselves as creative. And then you get into high school in the early years of college. And creatives now, we so dumb down what creative is that too often people think that's only the most obvious forms of creativity, like the arts or, you know, a writer, a musician, a visual artist, something like that. And that really does a disservice to a fundamental human attribute, which is we can create damn near anything we want to if we, uh, if we set out to do it. And then, you know, along the way, marshal the right uh, forces with, with colleagues to, to help make it happen. And so I think being reflective is uh, the critical, I think, first step in, in creating. I'm wondering if you think that there's a particular demographic that tends to be more reflective than another, or is there a particular age group? My experience, and I don't know if Reed concurs with this, but younger people, high school, college age, 20, 30 years old, maybe even tend to be a little bit more reflective or open to reflecting as opposed to somebody who might be in their sixties or seventies. Um, yeah. I, and it I might think even bring that along Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, what do you think? No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Con continue with your thought. I was wondering, and it might even break down along ideological lines, um, re Republican leaning or right leaning people as opposed to left leaning, possibly. Yeah, yeah ab absolutely. Um, I'm just kind of curious if, if you've discovered any, any findings, do you have any hypotheses on that? Well, well, I think, I think you're right on. So the, um, so we have two great, um, two great needs that, that happen to have, um, the same abbreviation. So uh, NFC, the need for cognition, or that's that's the psychological term for curiosity. I need to know this, ah, you know, NFC. But then the other NFC is the need for closure. And um, a researcher, I forget his first name, last name is Kruglansky, has done some really great work on the psychology of closed mindedness. And that's something that's really, really interesting to me because you know, we're pretty lucky. Most of our clients kind of get it. They understand what they're doing when they come to work with us. But every now and again, you get someone who um, isn't quite there. And, and I think part of this is, uh, you know, Reed's heard discussed before, this idea that negativity bias is both automatic, but also appears more profound than it actually is. So negativity seems really smart. And we all know people who have just dined out on that, if not, you know, have just made an entire career around being the first one who can eviscerate any new idea uh, and can be the first to show why anything new, anything interesting is, is oh, well, that's going to happen and that's going to happen. Did you think about this and you think about this and you just kind of go, oh, good Lord, you know. Um, <laughs> so I worked with, uh, with a few people like that. Yeah. And but we need to get the message out that that actually is they're they're taking advantage of a cognitive bug, and negativity bias shouldn't be both automatic and smart. I mean, that just you don't get 
you really shouldn't get credit for something that is just all too easy to do. Uh, I'm kind of dancing around this, but I, I think in, in the psychology of closed-mindedness, yeah, you do see that older people, um, look, they've, they've been there. They've, you know, they've been to the rodeo a few times. There's some comfort in landing and settling on more and more and more things and not needing to exert you know, oneself. And, and um, I, I think for a lot of older people, there's, there just seems to be a little percentage in, in taking on things with fresh eyes. Uh, and then there are weirdos like me who, you know, you know, you know, all my gray and, and grandfather status notwithstanding, you know, I, I always want to challenge myself. I always want to, and, and the more I've learned about cognitive biases and just be, behavioral uh, science overall, I realize that being modest in what you believe to be true uh, is just a better way of, of going about it. I mean, just, you know, it, it's, um, you have to take action. So you shouldn't always just be wondering if, well, could I, should I do this? Should I do that? You know, make some calls and everything, get it going. But the moment you think you have a stranglehold on, on reality, uh, you're setting yourself up for some, some pain, I think. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm pretty I'm sure I didn't, I'm pretty sure I didn't answer your question all that well, Anthony, but <laughs> No, no, no. But you, you got me thinking about myself personally. Like, I guess there was a point in my life where I really needed to know what was going on. And, and yeah. there, I hated ambiguity. This was maybe when I was like 20, 30 years old. Like things had to be just right. Yeah. And I needed to know. Yeah. And well, that's, something again, happened. That, like, that's curiosity. That is, that is the need for cognition. So these two needs, the need for cognition, the need for closure, you know, they, they exist in relationship with each other. And so I would just say, you know, am I, am I open to learn new things on everything? No, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable that I should probably apply deodorant every day. I don't really need to rethink that. Uh, I mean, the last time I really thought about that was probably in, in somewhere in prepubescence, you know, uh, there are just certain things that, I mean, we don't have time to question everything, but we ought to, um, Kind of prioritize and 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 regularly be testing the most important things so anyhow mm. well i guess what i was driving at uh was that these days i'm very comfortable with admitting that i don't know and, and I'm, open to new ideas. I'm open to experience yeah like it's 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 been um it's been like a rewarding part of my growth, I think, to be yeah. able to admit that I, there's a lot of things I don't know. I'm probably holding a shitload of beliefs that aren't true. And, um, I, you know, I need to keep abreast with technology and, and be open to new ideas. And it's, it's been, it's been like, I've never been more confident and, and, and grounded than I am today. And I think it's because I'm willing to admit that there are so many things that I don't know. Yeah. Does that make any sense? Oh yeah. It's kind of liberating, isn't it? Yeah. To that's I've used that word before. <laughs> it's totally, li it's liberating. It yeah. is. Well, and so, and so for me increasingly, again, you know, ad ad advice from an old man, any advice is autobiography and the autobiography of an old man ought to put everyone to, to sleep very quickly. But, um, <laughs> 
the getting some sense of clarity and focusing on what really matters to you. Uh, I think clarity for me, I don't think I understood the full benefits of clarity um, 30 years ago. Uh, to me now, clarity is, is, is just about the coin of the realm. And with that comes, with that focus comes much more of a desire to be effective than right. And some of that is ego stuff, right? You know, right is, you know, I'm justified, you know, I'm tearing a rotator cuff because I'm patting myself on the back so much. Um, I mean, that's just boring. I mean, who cares? I mean, really, that, 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 that is such a thin consolation, I think. I'd just rather be effective. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't have some stance, some uh, kind of basis from which I can operate, but I'm always going to remain modest in the claims that I make behind that. And it's going to be more around, hey, this seems to be working. And the more I've tested it, yeah, it seems to be working. I, I uh, refine it. I hone it. I become better even at that on the margin and everything. But I never get to a place where I say, yeah, that's great. And everything, never need to think about that again, particularly when it's in an area that is so central to who I am and what I'm trying to accomplish. I always need to be kicking that around, but I kick that around through action, not just uh, navel gazing. So, well, I guess what I'm saying is be, you know, uh, be deliberate, take time to think slow. Uh, and hopefully this is all in service of smarter action then. And then go out and do it, you know, go out and, and create with that then. Awesome. So if I were to Google list of cognitive biases, it might take me to that Wikipedia list where you can just scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll. And scroll. <laughs> yeah. But in your book, you, you picked out eight uh, cognitive biases. Uh, we did. And they are negativity bias, availability bias, curse of knowledge, status quo bias, confabulation, conformity bias, confirmation bias, and framing. Yeah, and, so, and yeah, and specifically, yeah. and we probably thinking of this now. We probably should have called that errors of framing because framing is, you know, framing, framing, errors of framing. Yeah, errors of framing. Yeah. Okay, so I'm kind of maybe wanna, Oh, go ahead. Brent, maybe sorry. we could take like the, the top three of these biases or four, and like talk about how maybe we could apply them to our type like SE conversations. How they could help us out. Yeah, and and what, uh, what and Anthony, what what were you, where were you going? Kind of along the same lines, uh, our audience, you know, primarily are people who want to have more effective talks yeah. and uh, being able to perhaps help us identify the top three uh, biases that we might encounter when we're in the field and we're having these talks, N not not on the street per se, but just in regular conversations where we're using SE. Um, what are, yeah, what are the big biases that we should be looking out for? What are some of the signs that a person might be experiencing that bias and then what maybe what suggestions would you have to to help us address perhaps those top three got it this will be a bit of a judgment call but there's a reason why there was uh kind of an order <laughs> to, to the eight and there's a reason why we even chose the eight you know at one point the list was much longer and then we said okay refine 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 where where are we really seeing the impact where are we are we really seeing kind of the the biggest obstacles in doing innovation right 
So number one, by no accident, is negativity bias. And this is, you know, bad is stronger than good in our cognition, in our memory, in our emotions. Negative people, events, um, you know, just tonality situations will always loom larger in our cognition. Uh, we remember bad things more than we do good things. Um, and again, that it's pretty simple to see why that evolved because it's super evolutionarily adaptive. If, if um, the ingoing, if the starting point is all novelty is threat, not necessarily opportunity, then only the most intrepid are going to try to kind of figure out how maybe they can kind of, you know, kind of flank this novelty and, and from a distance maybe start to figure it out. But most people are just going to get the hell out of there. And the people who just, got, just real quick, what's, yeah, just just real quick, what's an example of a negativity bias? Like, I avoid going down road A because I got pulled over for a speeding ticket, so I always go down B. Or, like, well, it's uh, it's it's the idea that um, when presented with novelty, our default mode is to go straight to what isn't good about it, rather than taking a moment, slow thinking, and going, well, hey, what might be good about this? You know. It's like, it's like the classic mm. rustling in the bushes. Is there a yeah, tiger yeah. there? Yeah. yeah. So, so again, mm. so we, mm. we kind of tell the story of Og and Thrak, you know, are out uh, around the clan HQ and there's this rustle in the bushes. Og just gets the hell out of there. And, and probably actually because of reflex and everything, you know, the body actually starts acting even before the cognition sticks in, uh, uh, you know, kicks in and Og is just gone. Thrak goes, you know what, that rustle is just different enough that that might not be a tiger. That could be opportunity of some sort. So in not separating himself from the noise as much as Og did, Thrax's genetic fate just took at least somewhat of a hit. Now, it may have taken a massive hit because the next step is the tiger indeed does come out and bye-bye Thrax. So repeat that over and over again, and it's pretty clear that we're the ancestors of the savants of risk avoidance, right? Mm. Those, those people who just didn't even mess around with it and just got the hell out of there, uh, stuck around longer, were, were more likely to, to be in a position to pass on their DNA, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Now repeat that over thousands of generations. I mean, um, you know, hominids go back, you know, how many, you know, we, we've got a few years, you know, the, the, uh, the Pleistocene era was what, like 12,000 years ago or so, but we certainly go back much further than that. And so uh, that particular thing is obviously replicated in, in other animals. We've even seen negativity bias in, in insects. You know, again, evolutionarily adaptive. When, when uh, existential threat, when daily existential threat is the reality then everything you can do to lessen that is is a good thing. Yeah, we, we didn't have to worry about the higher levels of Maslow's hierarchy of needs uh, as long as <laughs> just surviving the next day was the big win. Uh, yeah. So that's, yeah. And, and I think SE is trying to cope with that negativity bias as best as we can because I've heard some studies where you know, threats to our beliefs are kind of like in our heads, threats to our physical safety, especially core identity beliefs. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so we're our, trying to that, that's exactly right. So, so our threat 
detection apparatus never got discerning and there, it's not like there are multiple levels of threat detection so our body in terms of cortisol response and norepinephrine response and everything makes almost no distinction between tiger and oh my most cherished beliefs are being challenged we're still going to have that we're still going to have you know the, the heart rate's going to start to go up a little we might start you know a little bit of sweating uh blood you know um electrical flow is going to is going to more likely go towards the amygdala and we start to lose you know uh the prefrontal cortex takes a little bit of a nap uh, that was important i mean just even think of this now if that's a tiger why do i want any resources going to my prefrontal cortex at all uh, that's that's super expensive i need all those reflexes i need all that energy down into my you know my large leg muscles right uh, mm -hmm. I got to get out, I got to get out of here. Um, and so it's, again, it's easy to understand why all this evolved. Negativity bias, we talk about in first position, because unless you do something to mitigate its worst effects, you don't, you're just not going to get anywhere. And um, you, we think it's such a high leverage activity to, to work on it and to understand that absent some some consciousness and some deliberation we're all going to go there and then we're going to satisfy ourselves that we're doing really smart things by not doing anything new at all and it feels right and it feels so good and it's such a counterfeit because there is no tiger <laughs> yeah try it get out there you know it's just it's not our reality anymore uh so negativity bias is where we'd go first and in, in relationships and everything. So I, I made the, the, the critical error of um, training our kids and all this stuff. And oh, so wow. then, and then uh, we, we have these stickers that say yes, but with a slash through it. And uh, our, our approach is not to go straight to the yes, but, but to say first in any new stimulus, what are you for? And then what do you wish for? And it's a little bit beyond even yes and a lot of people have heard about from improv because it really does take on the negatives uh but it says use even the negatives to point to more opportunity what when you when you get a negative that's evoking something in you so go with that what is not being addressed that you would like to so then what would you wish for how to how might we and then use even the negatives to help you come up with more uh, ideas not to to shut thinking down so that's uh, that's negativity bias. Good there. Yeah, uh, I would go next to this is a bit of a judgment call, but we did have availability bias in second position because it is also very. We just succumb to it too easily, and it's so easily fixed. And so, so availability bias, Kahneman's term for that is, we act as if what we see is all there is. And we really do act as if that were the case. And uh, we, when we need to make a decision, we're thinking about things, we'll go to what is most quickly summonable, not necessarily what's most helpful. And uh, so even there, tied in with negativity bias, uh, if we're gonna recall something, we'll probably recall things that have more of a negative skew to them. We'll recall, you know, things that were more recent, we're, we're gonna recall more. And so then in terms of likelihood, recency distorts likelihood toward what we just most recently encountered or experienced. Um, and particularly when you're doing innovation, you want to make sure 
that you're deliberate about the stimuli that you're bringing in to, to help you think better. Uh, these are tools that you're bringing in and you want to make sure that you have kind of a thoughtful combination of, of related and unrelated stimuli when you're um, innovating. And it's not always easy or, or even close to being reflexive for people to go, hey, I'm thinking about um, you know, new, uh, new debit card possibilities. Uh, I'm going to go out and get some unrelated stimuli like roller skates, um, Mount Kilimanjaro, uh, <laughs> the color purple, and um, the book Genome by Matt Ridley. Uh, I just got that because I'm <laughs> gl glancing over here at a book pile. Uh, but when you start to develop this habit of seeking out other stimuli and then you smash associate it with, with what you're trying to do, the brain is this wonderful associative instrument and it will figure out even how to use Mount Kilimanjaro with coming up with new possibilities for a debit card. Uh, you have to take a little bit, you have to go, okay, Mount Kilimanjaro, will do some free association around that, really play with the power of metaphor, et cetera. But uh, instead of just going to the most obvious stuff right in front of your feet, which availability bias will take you to, uh, just being a little more thoughtful about it and trusting that your brain is going to be able to make connections um, when they're less than obvious. And that's, that's one quick way to fix availability bias is just deliberately go uh, pull in additional stimuli, not all of which is just obvious, the most obvious stuff. Yeah. I think that connects a little bit to our outsider test for faith. Uh, it just we're we're taking why someone believes something, and then we're using a third party or just a separate way, a separate belief that people could use the reason to come to. So it's it's kind of like adding another available thing into the thing into the con yeah. conversation to see the pattern. Well, see, and that's great because then you better model the principle that you're trying to. When, when it's not directly attached to the topic at hand, but it is this thing over here, then you can, you're setting, you're increasing the odds that the person you're talking with can hold that objectively and not subjectivize it, right? Because yeah. if it's, if it's my own beliefs, you know, many people, most people are, are, are still, their beliefs are them. And so their beliefs are still too subjectivized and not objectivized, right? And mm -hmm. so by, by, very smart going to this other place, then I can't hold that. I, I'm now able to hold that as an object and I can better take in what you're trying to um, teach me. Cool. Nice. Anything about uh, that, Anthony? I'm kind of wondering if the availability bias might be similar to like when we, when we talk to people who might be doubting a deeply held belief and considering options, they're considering the alternatives that are out there. Um, what what would my life be if I didn't have this belief? Who's you know what kind of resources are available, or what kind of communities are there to be there for me when I don't believe this anymore? I'm just I'm kind of wondering if that might help mitigate that the availability. Well, I, well, I think I think you're right. The, the, so the easier you can make it for someone to bring in other considerations. You know, don't don't make them do more work than they have to, right? How, how can you make that as easy as possible? Uh, and part of that again is making it safe, right? So, what are ways of making uh, that mm. kind of uh, mental exercise um, non-threatening? 
Uh, and so, I, yeah, I think that's great. Giving them some examples, just, you know, saying, hey, just, you know, for example, could be that, could be that, could be that, you know, whatever. I often say whenever I bring in examples, I'll say, I'm doing this only for illustration's sake. I'm not advocating, you know, anything here, you know. Uh, but but we when we do have another point, then that then starts to crack open possibility for us. We go, oh, okay, I see what that's like. Oh, okay, that makes me then think of A, B, K, and Q, you know. Mm. Cool. What's Availability next? bias. Um, judgment call, judgment call, judgment call. And so now, undoubtedly, I'm going to succumb to availability bias. And I'm going to go with something. <laughs> I'm going to go with something I've been thinking an awful lot about, but I think you guys get it. I think you got you guys have talked about it, and that is confirmation bias, which yeah, is. I was about to say. So I can blow through this quickly if it's not as as fresh for your audience, but just quickly, confirmation bias is when we've made a decision on something or even have a leaning towards something, which the research shows really just is a decision. You just haven't acknowledged it as such. Uh, we will, again, non-consciously, because all these biases are non-conscious, we will place our thumb on the scale for anything that is confirmatory of it or is even in the ballpark of being confirmatory of it. We're, we're really good at figuring out how, well, that might not be a direct support, but it's close enough. So, you know, we'll figure out how that's still kind of good for us. Uh, and conversely, we will discount anything that is disconfirmatory. And we might even be, think we're being super fair and say things like, well, I understand how under a lot of other situations that might not that might take this down, but this particular instance is different because, and uh, we just, uh, yeah, we're just weird. We're just goofy in in that regard. And I, and I have to say again, like with 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 all of these, what's great the value of <laughs> much of this for me is in spotting these holes in my own game. And and recognizing the patterns when I'm about to step into that and go, oh, look what I was about to do. And then, you know, if you if you do, if you've read any Karl Popper uh, and, and if you, you know, if you understand the values of falsification uh, and really how I mean, it sounds so kind of threatening again, you know, falsification like what? Oh, yeah. You know, maybe we need better language. I don't know, uh, but you know, I, 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 I'm not. Yeah, testing. That's great, but but yeah, that's right. It really is testing, and it's really kind of like stress testing. It's like testing testing something at its, you know, kind of at its um, most critical point of potential failure. Uh, but again, if you test it and then it comes through that. Holy shit, this is fantastic. I mean, that's great. Why wouldn't you want to do that? Uh, it's I, I don't know if you guys talk much about John Stuart Mill, but his oh, whole yeah. his whole thing, you know, the the uh, excerpt from On Liberty where he talks about the clash of truth and error and how helpful that is. If you think you have the truth, putting it in there and then it's tested and, and you're proven right then you feel even better about staying with it. But if it's proven wrong, why would you want to persist any longer in error than you absolutely have to? And, and I think it is, part of this really is, is, is the failure to make that distinction between subjectivized beliefs and being able to hold beliefs uh, or, or, or even thoughts objectively. Ideas are not limbs of the body. Uh, we're under no threat to jettison them. Uh, 
particularly if it's an upgrade, we ought to be happy to do that. And, and so um, anything we can do to help people not subjectivize so much and and again, beating a, a you know kind of a, a drum repeatedly here for psychological safety. I, you just can't overstate how important that is because people aren't going to get there otherwise. And so, kind of relaxing the you know the the emotional centers of the brain, letting the amygdala take a little bit of a break, uh, it can be a good thing. Right. So confirmation bias. So well, so yeah, yeah, so confirmation bias, the the fix there is we often will do, we'll just kind of go right into it and we'll say, all right, let's do some assumption busting and let's list a bunch of assumptions we're making here and let's take some time. Let's not just dash it off because some of the most critical assumptions, are the ones that are so baked into the, to your reality, that's even hard to think of them, right? And so... Um, really digging in deeply and some of the most obvious assumptions are also always are also fair game because they're so obvious it's probably been a long time since anyone's challenged them uh but then you can come to them with fresh eyes and you can say well what if that assumption weren't true or what if it weren't as constraining as we now believe it is it doesn't have to just be a binary you know true or false it could just be what if what if that isn't as big um uh, a control on what we're trying to do here as we've always imagined it is. It might still play a role, maybe just not quite so much. But when you can be deliberate about uh, the assumptions you're making and, and again, hold them objectively and play with them, I think uh, playing with, with ideas is so vital and not feeling the need so quickly to, to get it all resolved. A lot of this is what, you know, Keats called uh, a negative capability, the ability to deal with ambiguity for a bit. Uh, and um, just, you know, kind of trust that you're going to get where you need to be. The, the ambiguity uh, doesn't have to be an end state. Uh, some of us are just more comfortable with it. I'm very comfortable with ambiguity. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you can use ambiguity again, as another tool, you can choose to go into ambiguity for a while in the service of getting to a better place. So I think assumption busting for confirmation bias is, is super helpful. I love that phrase, assumption busting. And that can be kind of almost done with just a question. It's almost yeah. rhetorical. Like well, how just, does X relate to Y, stuff exactly. like that. Well, again, it's just the spirit of play and just saying, mm -hmm. hey, this we're just playing right now. This is yeah, this is all it is. Uh, the stakes aren't that high. No one's going to get hurt. We'll do everything we can to make sure no one's going to get hurt. Uh, if you're so sensitive, uh, life is overly difficult for you. Maybe we can't guarantee you won't get hurt. But um, it, let's just play. Let's just play. Let's just see where it can go. We can draw whatever conclusions we want to afterward. But for right now, let's just play. And, you know, it, uh, Einstein talked about the value of Gedanken experiment, right? Thought yeah. experiments. And we just, we need to be doing that more. We just need to be playing with ideas more, just strictly to see where things could go and what fresh territory is broken open when we do that. And then we can decide what we want to do with all that. And, the, uh, and we might choose to do nothing, but at least we've gone through that and we have a greater sense of what could be. 
love that. Yeah. I love that because wonder... we often do that. We often find ourselves participating in hypotheticals, like in one you know, one of Reed's famous conversations that he had had with Tia. Let's let's suppose that somebody from a different religion came up to the table and sat down and, and indicated <laughs> that they were also using faith to believe this. Um, so we do a lot of storytelling. We do participate in a lot of hypotheticals. Sometimes we get pushback. It's interesting. Uh, we're, it's not uncommon to, to run into somebody who who does not like to do hypotheticals. It's kind of interesting um, when you encounter that. I, I'm kind of wondering if they if, if this these people avoid participating or entertaining hypotheticals because they understand the power of doing so. When you do open yourself up to to potential outcomes, you know, and, and, and kind of put yourself in that frame of mind that maybe maybe that yeah. itself is is a threat. I think I think that's certainly a, a, a good part of it. I'm also open to the notion that um, I'm just a geek and I find fascination in in thinking uh and a lot of people don't you know they have other hobbies <laughs> you know and, <laughs> and and so i'm i'm um you know it's not only because i've received so much feedback from others about how geeky i am uh which you know whatever i don't care i'm gonna do what i'm gonna do because i enjoy it and i find it meaningful but some people just really um I, I I really never want to be judgmental of them. They're they're finding satisfaction in other endeavors, and uh, they in critical areas might be doing so much more for the world than I am. Um, I want to be careful there and not write them off, just because they're not as fixated on some as as I am on some of the things that I am. But um, you know, I think it's a little bit of charity, <laughs> you know, towards uh towards everyone i think i mean you guys are doing such a great job with that you're what you do better than many skeptics which i want to applaud you for is is that idea of establishing you know some safety and and creating the space where we can kind of play with some of these ideas and i really i do believe you're 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 so much more focused on being effective than right and um, that you you understand how the ego could really um, just kind of screw this up for you, and get, again give you the very thin consolation of yay me, you know, but not really getting anywhere. And we need to be able to reach out more. Um, there, you know, I when I'm with the right group, and I, I think no one's going to take uh, offense at it. I, I I make the point that there's. You know, there's a reason why we figured out really early uh, in our species that incest wasn't a particularly great genetic strategy, uh, and why wouldn't that apply to ideas as well? And can we actually get some other thoughts in here that don't just look exactly like the, the thoughts that we have right now, and maybe really get some hybrid vigor? And in that, not even just oppositional clashing, but it's not just like always dealing with ideas that are 180 degrees from where I am How about just ideas that are 25 degrees away from where I am or, you know, 75, you know, whatever. Uh, and, and actually surround my starting point with other ideas uh, and not focusing always just on direct descent or direct 180 degree clash. I think the more we do of that and, and the term I really like is, you know, how can we think orthogonally, right? 
And so now how can we think 90 degrees away from where we are, not just go to the binaries all the time? Weird that's metaphor. I think where the dialogue. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. That's where I think where the dialogue is so critical. The dialogue is, is what's opening ourselves up to these different ideas and thinking about things in new ways and thinking about things orthogonally. Yeah. As, as the term is, I think so. But that's exciting, isn't it? I mean, I think it's really, uh, you know, I, 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 I think I sense some kindred spirits here. We're, we're all kind of switched on by ideas. We're switched on by better thinking. We're switched on by exploring. And, um, Again, I mean, we're part of part of what's true about us with with curiosity is that we're the animal that explores for more than just satisfaction of the basic needs of uh, food, shelter and procreation. And sometimes we just like to explore just for the sheer enjoyment of exploring, you know, mm. and uh, but particularly in the realm of thought, I think exploration is so it's just so rewarding. It's so enjoyable. All right. Well, this has been totally enjoyable. Um, <laughs> really, really yeah, this is it. totally Breeze Alley. He loves this stuff. Yeah, I love this stuff. This is good um, stuff. I, I will say, gents, life is too short not to have more thoughtful conversations like this and, and explore together and see what we can learn from each other. And, uh, yeah, come on. Yeah. We, we, we could be watching TV right now, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. I'd much rather be doing this. Absolutely. Yep. So there's just one other thing. Like, have you heard of the GI Joe fallacy, uh, Adam? Oh, it's going to kill me now. I know I have, and I forget what it is. So, so it, you know, the GI me. Joe commercials back in the day. It's like the more yeah. you know, and knowing is half the battle. Um. So with these cognitive biases. Even if we know about them, that's not the whole game. Like it's, they're still going to be uh, trapping us all the time. Oh, oh, absolutely. So, yeah. So, well, it's and, not like we can escape them. No, and and Kahneman is really pretty. Um, I mean, he just comes out and says, "Look, we're not. We are in our lifetime. Certainly, we're not going to uh, get rid of the cognitive biases." You know, the, the evolutionary time scale, Anthony, earlier you mentioned, I don't think I really addressed it, is like often we think evolution sets us up for better and better. And over a long arc of time, it certainly does. And I believe that future generations, you know, the more we learn about epigenetics and everything, I, I do believe that future generations are going to be held back less by the cognitive biases. But uh, evolutionary time is multiple lifetimes and it's, it's not going to happen to uh, our kids, our grandkids, you know, we're, we're still a ways out, but the great news is that is that we can still do so much about them. We can mitigate their worst effects. We can be thoughtful about them. We can start to see them come out in ourselves, And that's really, I think where the value is in all of this is, is not just, it's all too easy to use this as as a cudgel against others and go, oh, I see what bias you're using right now. Because of naive realism, that's always going to be easier to, to spot it in other people than in ourselves. But the real value of this is, is in catching yourself. And then just having a little bit of, for me, look, I'm a, I'm a basically a, a pretty happy guy. You know, uh, I self-deprecating self humor has never been 
anything other than my preferred, <laughs> you know, uh, approach to humor. I, I'm, I think I, I know I have blind spots because we all, all do, but I think I'm aware of many of them. And I, I also find them funny. I think I'm, I'm just a knucklehead. But what you can do with this in catching yourself and understanding that we're all in this together, the ideal is hopefully we're using this knowledge to find increasing solidarity with each other, supporting each other, not using it ever to judge uh, or, or um, try to catch people or trap people in it or anything. That's just, ah, that, 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 yeah. uh, that does concern me that, 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 that as, as awareness of this gets out there, I, every now and again, I'll see people using it that way and I'll go, you're no, no, turn the lens on yourself first, you know, uh, I won't invoke um, a certain Canadian psychologist who uh, gets a lot of uh, airtime, but you know, get your own house in order, you know, um, and and try to you know try to um, try to get going on that first. That's where the greatest gains are going to be. Uh, and then, if you want to help others, do it from a place of compassion, doing it from a place of psychological mm. safety. Do it from a place of, of genuinely trying to be helpful and trying to be effective and not trying to be right. Right. So, yeah, I really like the yeah. idea of recognizing, you recognize that people will have these biases, but we also have to recognize that we ourselves are more than capable of having them. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and maybe even sort of like re rewarding ourselves when we discover that we're doing it and being humble enough to acknowledge it and and maybe even laugh about it, but try Absolutely. to try to correct it and and, sh and share yeah. share the discovery that we've just had with other people, so that they can probably do it. Yeah, you know, do the Absolutely. same thing with their own when they discover it. I love it. Totally. And if you guys want to learn how much better to art outsmart your instincts, Adam has his book. I think it's uh, on Amazon and maybe other some other places. So yep. definitely check that out. Yep. And any other announcements, Anthony? I don't really have any other announcements other than the weather seems to be breaking here. And uh, as I, as I've been promising for the last couple of weeks, I, I do intend to go out and do some more talks pretty soon. It's been about two months since I've uploaded some new content. I've been busy um, with personal things. Uh, the kids are involved in sports. So I've been, I've been dragged to that and, but I've been doing some interviews. I was on a show called mind the gap and it was a two hour discussion. We covered all sorts of things, including street epistemology and, we got into some in-depth analysis of Aaron Ra's outing when he was doing street epistemology. So if you want a little glimpse into my thoughts on that, I'll, I'll put a link to that show. But um, that's pretty much it. I've, I've just kind of been busy with family stuff and doing interviews, uh, but I'm interested in getting out and, and having conversations with people, making them feel psychologically safe and identifying biases when they come up. Love it. Awesome. All right. So any, uh, I want to share any of your social media, Adam, uh, hit me on Twitter. I love talking about this stuff and I love being challenged. And even if you're not overly artful in how you challenge me, I get it. I, I think I understand where you might be coming from and I can promise I'll, I'll try to be as, uh, I'll try to walk my own talk. Uh, but on Twitter, I'm at ad Hansen, A D H A N S E N. Uh, you can find me on Facebook as well. I really enjoy these kinds of conversations. I enjoy getting in there and learning from each other. Uh, we're individually just finite critters. We do need the input from each other. 
we we need those additional perspectives. We want to be uh, we just want to be better, you know, um, you know. Uh, we want to be we want a bigger toolkit, and we want to be more adept at using the various tools that we put into that toolkit. And that doesn't happen if you're cloistered. So I I like getting out there and and having that connection. Awesome. Fantastic. Anthony? Kindred spirits, indeed. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being on our show. We really appreciate it. And uh, your expertise is very welcomed in our community. And I hope people do check out your book. Absolutely. Thank you, gentlemen. This has really been enjoyable. Street Epistemology is a technique by Dr. Peter Bogosian in his book, A Manual for Creating Atheists, and his Android and iOS app, Atheos.